Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist, and this week with me, Chris Smith, and with Diana O'Carroll. And first up, as we always do, let's kick off with a look at some of this week's top science news stories. Diana, what have you got for us this week? Well, a new study this week has found that in order to keep track of time, our minds exploit as many clues in the environment as they can get hold of. And this means that our internal clock isn't solely controlled by pre-programmed cells in the brain. So researchers from University College London have shown that some of our perception of time is governed by observing how much the world changes. The researchers also think that through life we have learned that things in the environment change at an average rate. So if we compare the changes we see to the changes we expect, our minds can estimate how much time has passed. Publishing in Current Biology, the researchers used two experiments to test their theory. For the first, 20 participants observed blobs of projected light appear twice. They were then asked which appearance lasted the longest. The light blobs were then projected alongside a mottled pattern, which was programmed to change randomly, but at a regular average rate. And this addition actually improved the participants' time judgments, which suggests that their brains used the rate at which the patterns changed in order to construct an in internal time reference. And for the second experiment, the authors varied the rates at which the patterns changed and then asked the subjects to judge how long the mottled patterns lasted. And when the patterns changed faster, the test subjects thought they had lasted for longer, which demonstrates that a change in sensory input can alter our sense of time. Now, Dr Manish Sahani, who led the research, uh, believes that, the, that because of the various types of sensory input and analysis that go into this timekeeping, there may be no single area in the brain which is responsible for it, which is news. And that would explain also why when you drive somewhere it seems to take a lot longer to go than it does to come back because you're paying lots of attention to the changing visual scenery along the way, remembering where you've been, trying to remember the way home, for example. But then when you turn around and go back, you get home apparently quicker because you're paying much less attention to the scenery passing. Yeah, I suppose if you think about it, your brain is trying to filter out less sort of sensory information per mile that you're travelling. So, yeah, it would, it would make it travel much more slowly. Thanks, Diana. Well, also this week, uh, scientists have used a mouse which has been given a human immune system to develop a new treatment or a potential new treatment for HIV, which is the virus responsible for causing AIDS, and in the course of doing that, damaging the immune system, of course. Now, currently, the way which we treat HIV is to use a drug strategy called HART, H-A-A-R-T, which stands for Highly Active Antiretroviral Therapy. And this involves giving patients a combination of different drugs which tackle different bits of the virus life cycle, and this minimises the risk of someone getting a virus which is resistant to the agents. But it's not without problems, and although it has enormously improved the prognosis for people who are infected with HIV, those drugs carry a very high risk of side effects, which can be very unpleasant. And at the same time, people do eventually progress to forms of the virus which are resistant to all of those agents, so they can still develop immune problems. So in recent years, scientists have begun to look for ways of using our understanding of RNA, the genetic material of the virus, as one way to tackle the problem. And there's something called RNA interference, which actually got the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. And this is where you add to a cell a piece of RNA, nucleic acid, which is effectively the genetic mirror image of a gene in a virus or in a cell 
that the virus is relying on. So you, you target a cellular gene that the virus needs to grow, for example. And when you put this mirror image bit of RNA into the cell, it finds the normal counterpart, the two lock together and cancel each other out effectively. And it turns those genes off. And this is one way that researchers think we might be able to deactivate HIV. But one major problem with doing this is it's really hard to get these interfering RNAs, as they're known, into the target cells. So another approach that researchers have been looking at is to also use one other interesting aspect of RNA, this nucleic acid, which is that it folds up into all kinds of interesting shapes in a predictable way. So if you choose certain sequences of RNA by putting different genetic letters into it, you can make these bits of nucleic acid that fold into all these interesting shapes that can do things. And Charles Neff and his colleagues have got a paper in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week they're a team at Colorado State University. And what they've done is to design one of these RNAs, and they're called aptamers, in such a way that they will bind to something called GP120, which is on the surface of the AIDS virus. It's the sticky bit that it uses to penetrate target cells. And the clever thing here is that they have combined their aptamer, their sticky HIV-targeting RNA, onto a second piece of RNA, which is one of these RNA interference molecules. And what they find is if they use a mouse, which has been engineered so that it has a human immune system, you can infect this mouse with HIV. The mouse gets exactly the same sort of syndrome that the human would, but you can test this particular approach on the mouse. And what they find is that mice treated with this aptamer coupled with the interfering RNA, develop almost undetectable levels of virus in their bloodstream almost immediately. And as long as you keep treating them with the agent, then they remain well, and their blood cells don't change their levels at all over the entire course of the study, and compared with control animals, where if you don't treat them, then they have up to a 50% decline in vulnerable immune cells just in 18 weeks. So this suggests this could be a very powerful way to treat HIV in a novel way, which no one's exploited yet, and uh, which may, if we can translate this to humans, offer a new way to treat the disease without many of the side effects that the current drug regimens carry. Okay, so that's mice, but how far away is this from being applied to humans? Well, the point they make at the end of their paper is they say that, uh, yes, there is a difference between mice and men, and we need to know what the pharmacokinetics are. So when you put these agents into a person, where will they go? How effective are they? But those are simple studies, which, when we've got some grasp of that, will mean that clinical trials are not going to be too far away. Excellent stuff. Right, well, also in the news this week, um, researchers at uh, Imperial College in London have discovered an unusual process uh, which is happening in a contagious form of cancer that infects dogs. And canine transmissible venereal tumour, or CTVT as it's known, is spread by mating and it can also be transmitted by licking, biting or sniffing tumour-affected areas. And the tumour cells then move from one animal to another and they establish a new tumour. But what this new study has revealed is that the cancerous cells keep themselves healthy by stealing key cellular spare parts from the host animal. And if the same is true of human cancers, it could hold the key to a host of new treatments for the disease. And to tell us a bit more, we're joined by Dr Claire Rebeck, formerly from Imperial College. She's now out at Cold Spring Harbour in the USA, and she's with us. Hello, Claire. Hi. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. First of all, can you tell us a bit more about the biology of this tumour, this canine transmissible venereal tumour? So this tumour is actually very interesting. Um, It's one of only two types of tumour currently known that can be passed on from one individual to another and actually grows like um, a skin graft. With the dogs, it's able to go to any breed of dog and can also actually be passed on to some of the wolf population as well. Somehow it evades the immune system 
so the dog is not able to recognize that it's not part of itself and therefore it doesn't reject the tumor um, until it grows. And what was the specific question that you were looking to solve with the present study, Claire? So for this present study, we were trying to actually find more information about um, how the tumours were related to each other and trying to estimate um, some more uh, information on the age of the tumour. We had actually done a previous study which um, tried to calculate how old the common ancestor of all the tumours that we collected were. So we actually collected tumours from seven countries in this particular study. Um, we found that on the previous study, we found that all the tumours from these um, these countries all came from a single origin, and that this was approximately only about five or six hundred years ago. We were trying to use the the mitochondrial genome for this present study, which is another another region in the cell which provides genetic information to provide more information about how old the tumour is. So you've got lots of samples of these tumours from various places and you've got DNA out of them and specifically DNA from these mitochondria, the little organelles in cells that give cells their energy but which carry their own DNA so they're useful as a, as a marker. So how did you then uh, study the mitochondrial DNA? What were you looking for? So we were looking for uh, mutations in the DNA. Over time, mutations arise and you can actually measure these and you provide information on how closely related one tumour is to another and also how long it's been since these tumours have been separated based on the number of mutations that have arisen between the tumours. And if you compare the numbers of mutations in the, just the DNA of the tumour, the normal cellular DNA, and the rate at which mutations are cropping up in this mitochondrial DNA, you'd expect them to be the same, were they? Well, actually, they, they're not always the same. Certain regions in the, in the nuclear genome, which is the area of the genome which most people are familiar with, um, there are regions which will mutate much more rapidly. Um, there's also regions which code for genes, and these tend to mutate at a much slower rate. So we have actually looked at the rapidly mutating regions and found a result from these about the common ancestor and, and provided an estimate of the age for this. The mitochondrial region, or the mitochondrial DNA, also has regions which mutate quickly and slowly. So we actually use both of these regions to help us with the answer that we were looking for. But in both of these regions, the results that we found, we didn't expect them. Why not? What was wrong? We expected there to be not so many mutations in either region, either the fast or the slowly evolving region. But we found actually there was much more variation between the tumours than we expected. And how do you account for that? What do you think is going on? We think, therefore, that the mitochondrial genome is actually not part of the, the tumour, per se. And so I mean it hasn't come from a single origin. So we suspected then that the tumour has somehow able to take up the mitochondrial DNA from a different source which we suspect would be one of the host dogs that it had grown on at some point in the past. Do you think it's taking up uh, just the DNA of mitochondria from adjacent host cells, or do you think it's scooping up entire mitochondria and bringing them into the tumour cells to keep them healthy? So that's a good question, and we're not entirely sure about that. We suspect that it's actually taking up the whole mitochondria, um, so the whole organelle. We think this because the original type of cell that this tumour came from acts as some sort of immune cell, so it's able to engulf foreign matter. So this type of cell, we suspect, may then have the ability to engulf the, the mitochondria itself.
If this is true, if it is taking up mitochondria on block like this and incorporating them into itself, does this mean the same could happen in any human tumour? And this could be one of the reasons why cancers grow so successfully, despite being genetically highly disorganised in humans and other animals. So I think probably not because this, the need for it to take up the new mitochondria is mainly a result of the fact that the tumour is so ancient. Um, in a normal person, their cancer is only as old as the person itself, so the number of mutations may not be sufficient in order for it to require a new, a new input. Um, however, I mean, this may happen sometimes, but it would be very difficult to detect. Thank you very much. Claire Rebeck, uh, she's based at Coldspring Harbour, and you can read that paper if you want to. She published it this week in the journal Science. Diana. Well, also this week, researchers have shown that, for fact-based subjects at least, practising a retrieval exercise produces better test results than concept mapping. Now, based at the Purdue University, Jeffrey Karpika and Janelle Blunt run several tests on 120 college students in the US. In their experiment, they had students create a concept map from a set text and then tested the students on what they had learned. Now, a concept map, for, for those that don't know, is a sort of spider diagram with lots of lines linking up ideas and facts and the concept map was actually developed in the 70s by Joseph Novak and quite a few institutions now encourage its use. The researchers uh, then had the students complete a sort of reading comprehension or retrieval exercise on the test on the text and then tested them on what they'd learned. So the students were essentially being tested on the test and then tested again. Um, What they found was that the students performed better on the retrieval exercise than they did on the mind mapping exercise and what's more they retained the knowledge for longer if they learned using retrieval. So publishing in Science, the researchers claim that it's both the act of recall and the act of reconstructing knowledge that are key for learning. But if you're still a huge fanatic of concept mapping, you could, of course, combine the two by creating a mind map from memory. So if you want to do well in exams, just make sure you test yourself. It's funny because when you started saying all that, I thought, yeah, that's actually the way I've learned for my exams throughout my life um, by writing something down and then trying to recite it and recall it and, and, and error checking myself that way. If I couldn't recall it and, and I'd got the facts right, then I would do it again till I did. Yeah, it's, it's funny, actually. I always used to find that if I tested somebody else on the subject I was learning, I actually learned it much faster that way as well. Well, they say the best way to to learn something is to have to teach it. Well, just to finish us off this week, scientists have discovered what they say is the world's smallest farmer. Now, we're all comfortable with humans farming. We're comfortable even with animals like ants, some beetles, some birds farm things. For instance, leafcutter ants farm edible forms of fungi. But now researchers have identified a farmer which is just one cell big. This is actually a kind of amoebae that lives in the soil. They're called Dictyostelium, and they are under scrutiny by a lady called Deborah Brock, who is at Rice University. She's got a paper in the journal Nature this week describing this. And what she found when looking at these things, they're very interesting. They live in the soil, these amoebae. They eat bacteria, but if they run short of food and get hungry, they all flock together and they form a, a multicellular thing resembling a slug, which goes towards the surface and when it gets close to the surface it puts up these fruiting bodies which uh, contain fertile amoebae on the top which can be disseminated to the wider environment in order to try to go off and find pastures new and some of the amoebae in helping to make this slug sacrifice themselves so the rest can survive. 
But when Deborah Brock studied these things a bit more closely, she saw that about a third of them, so 36% of them, had things inside them. And a closer look revealed that they're bacteria. And to cut a long story short, by doing some careful studies, she found that what's happening is that as these amoebae are munching bacteria in the soil, they forego some of their meal to store the bacteria inside themselves as a sort of seed so that when they go to a new place, they can then plant those bacteria and grow a new colony of bacteria to then eat later. And at the moment, the researchers don't know why only a third of them do it. It would appear to be some kind of genetic trait, but they're very interested in finding out what the genetic underpinnings of this are because there are lots of diseases, including things like TB, which involve microbes having the ability to get inside other cells and persist in them. TB, salmonella or other examples like that. So if we can understand the genetic basis of what the microbes are doing inside these particular amoebae, perhaps we'll have a new lead in understanding a bit about how TB and other major pathogens cause disease in humans. If you want to follow up on any of the stories that Diana and I have talked about this week, they're all present on our website with the references. You can follow them up there at nakedscientists.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.